You are listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM, a show that connects MIT to the world. I'm your host, Sanaya Sampson-Hill, and on this episode, we will be celebrating a milestone of MIT Global Startup Labs, a MISTI program. This year, Global Startup Labs, or GSL, celebrated 20 years sending MIT students abroad to teach other students about entrepreneurship and help realize their startup ideas. GSL managers, students, alumni, and founders congregated via Zoom to commemorate and reflect on their achievements. Over 300 students have instructed thousands of GSL students across four continents. Startups that were incepted in GSL have gone on to become successful companies. The impact that GSL has made makes the program a special and important part of MISTI. There aren't many programs out there like GSL. So we have some audio excerpts from the events. In the first one, you will hear from two of the co-founders, Paul and Jorge and Martin Mbaya. At the time of GSL's founding, Paul and Martin were two MIT students who had a growing interest in technological development in Africa. So in the beginning, GSL was not Global Startup Labs, but actually the Africa Internet Technology Initiative, AITI, until 2013. With Michael Gordon, a PhD student at MIT, taking over director duties at AITI, the program focused its efforts more on entrepreneurship and coding. Through the help of sponsorships, the program was able to expand beyond Africa, hence the name change to Global Startup Labs. Paul, Martin, and Michael tell more about their stories with Katya Zabrowski, the GSL lead, and Saman Amarasinghe, the faculty co-director, who speaks first. This program has evolved a lot. When we started this program, nobody knew what entrepreneurship means. And when you go to a country, they think we are teaching them about programming. And to a point where entrepreneurship is a common buzzword everywhere. And within that program, I think we have helped people from many countries get into entrepreneurship. And you will see today, the success stories of some of these uh, uh, companies that got started. It's really exciting for me as a faculty director to see these successes of these students from who went through the program, took it to heart to become an entrepreneur and actually doing amazing thing in those countries, creating jobs, creating technology and becoming leaders in these countries in many fields like agriculture, artificial intelligence, even machine learning these days. And we are going to talk about the few, uh, uh, past of the program, what we did and impact in there and also future of the program going forward. Again, I welcome you all and let's continue through the rest of the program. Tell us, um, you were seniors at MIT when you started planning the curriculum and raising the money for the first program in Kenya. Tell us, what was your inspiration and what did you hope to achieve with this program? Yeah, th thank you, Katya. I think I'll, I'll give Paul the on, on our speaking first. We call him the lead founder. And there was actually one more founder who unfortunately was not able to join us, Solomon Asefa from Ethiopia, who was also a senior. And uh, what I remember was uh, Paul, Solomon, and I at different points took part in an MIT program called Leadership that inspired uh, those of us at MIT to make a change and transform some aspect of society. And during our time at MIT, I was involved in the African Students Association leadership, MIT SETI and uh, MIT Japan program. And when Paul shared his vision of being a part of something new in Africa as uh, his leadership project, I immediately jumped on board 
And uh, Paul, Paul, I think you'd be able to tell the story. What what inspired you when, uh, when Solomon and I were joining you? Yeah, so to, to hack on what Martin said, uh, I, I have to walk you down memory lane. So as Martin said, um, the, the vision for uh, AITI was formed over a period of time and its seeds were sown in a, a leadership course that MIT offers. Now, I'm not sure if leadership still offered at this time, um, but at that time, this is a course that helps students become uh, more aware of how to develop a vision and, and how to formulate it, as well as become better leaders. So at that, in that session, uh, I was very lucky to uh, get to meet a lot of uh, MIT professors and a lot of MIT folks. And in particular, I met the late professor Paul Gray and uh, we became friends. And then after that, um, I talked to him about uh, this program that I wanted to start. Now, the reason why uh, I wanted to start it at that point was during that time, remember it was uh, around 1998, uh, the internet was just catching on. I was a sophomore, very young, and um, I was very enamored by the internet and what its potentials might be. And I'd already started seeing um, things like uh, online, uh, you know, web, web, uh, web programming uh, coming online and B2B businesses being created. And that time I, I thought of the potential and if I could somehow uh, bring that potential to Africa, in some sense, uh, kind of bridge the digital divide. And I felt, you know, the first, um, the first uh, poll that you showed there was about, you know, the, the different things that are affecting the world and what you think is most important. Africa at that point had a lot of issues. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that I was playing in my mind was we've always lagged behind in so many other areas. And this was a new vanguard uh, in terms of technology. And I felt like, you know, it's, it's good if Africa didn't also lag behind in this, in this uh, technology. And so uh, AITI, in some sense, the vision was to try and bridge that divide that was already starting to build up. Uh, to build up. And so that was where the idea started. And, um, and then, you know, so I, I got in touch with Professor Gray, mentioned my idea to him. And uh, Professor Gray was a, a great man. Um, he took this sophomore who knew nothing and told me, look, Paul, you have a very nebulous idea here. But what we're going to do is we're going to have two weekly, uh, we're going to have weekly meetings every two weeks. And we're going to talk about this, uh, get this nebulous idea into a crystal idea. And, you know, hopefully get it going uh, to where it can be feasible. And so that's what has happened. And uh, so I got that idea, got in touch with Martin and got in touch uh, with other folks and kind of laid out what the vision was. Uh, Professor Gray was very instrumental in terms of resources, in terms of uh, introducing us to folks within the MIT community and without MIT community. And I don't wanna get into too much of the details, but long story short, uh, within a year and a half, we'd written proposals, we'd done fundraising, and in the January of 2000, uh, we were ready to go to uh, Africa to start to launch the first program. So a lot of, a lot of stuff packed in there, uh, but I think that the main key thing is that we wanted to bridge the digital divide and MIT provide, provided an enabling environment uh, in many ways for us to do that. Yeah, yeah. So what I'll add, uh, Paul, I think has covered the, the broader spectrum. I wanted to mention some names. I, I think names have a good way of ringing bells. When we were joining as freshmen, there was somebody called Aisi Makatiani and Karanja Gakio, both from MIT with their colleague Amolongweno, who had been at Harvard, who formed a company called Africa Online. And early in our freshman year, they inspired us. I remember Paul and I um, at IHOP uh, over on the Boston side, 
uh, having breakfast with IEC and being inspired, you can make a change. Uh, John Gashora, Dennis Oma, Peter Rondo, Victor Owar, Mike Owu, those were all our seniors. And I think they imbued in us this idea that we needed to make a difference. Um, and in addition to the late uh, Paul Gray, uh, Larry Bakau, who was then the chancellor and uh, is currently the president at Harvard, uh, the Beatty family, I can't forget uh, Gordon and Kate, uh, the late Patricia Gasek, uh, who was part of the MIT Japan program, uh, Suzanne Berger, and uh, I, I don't know if I pronounced that right. We, we had a whole community that was quite uh, strongly behind us as we fundraised. And then Andrew Nevins and Eric Traub, uh, both uh, students at MIT who joined us at Strathmore for the first iteration of the program. Later, I know we'll hear from Michael uh, and uh, Yaron Binur and Eston Kimani who ended leading the program. Uh, and then as we moved along, Google provided quite a bit of money. Uh, Misty was very supportive. So in all those different perspectives, I think we were really happy um, that we were able to put together a program. And then last but not least, Moridi Kirimania, who helped us start a version of the program at the high school uh, in Kenya, at the high school level. We started at Strathmore University. And there's so many other names from uh, West Africa, Southern Africa, East Africa, Central, North Africa. There's no shortage of names of how uh, many rallied. And then at the point Michael Gordon came along, the program I think was ripe for a transition and I'm sure we'll hear something from uh, Michael along those lines. And I'm delighted we have Clarice here from Rwanda. She was one of the very first teams uh, we met uh, and her team Hehe, and she's doing quite well for herself. I'm sure we'll hear from Clarice uh, quite soon. And Michael, you joined uh, as a graduate student instructor in 2007. Um, but you had a different vision for the program. You thought it could be global. Is that correct? Could you tell us more about your uh, motivation and your vision? Yeah, so that was that was definitely one of my visions. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank everyone for participating today. And it's amazing to see um, where this program has gone in the last 20 years. Uh, it's just amazing to me, uh, given all the work and all the help that I had from different individuals that you know made this program um, such a success. So um, you know, I'm really touched today about you know, given all the people that have participated and the, the wonderful outcomes that we've had from the program. So you know, long, very, very long story short, um, before AITI GSL, um, I was a grad student working in in Samanamar Sangi's group, and back then the vogue was for. Um, computer scientists that were techno idealists to work in information and technology for development. So that was really to, to, to try to apply your technology expertise to try to, you know, solve problems in the developing world. And a lot of that was being done, you know, from these ivory towers in America, from the MITs, the Harvards and other top universities here at Emma, in America. And I, I got swept up in that bandwagon. So I worked on a few projects starting in 2004, mostly around um, healthcare. So like mobile health technologies. And the technology, you know, we thought was going to, you know, solve all the problems in the world. Mobile phones were penetrating, and I worked on some some mobile healthcare initiatives that, you know, won international awards, had awesome technology. And then we tried to deploy them, and you know, the technology worked really well. But what ended up being the problem with the deployment and expansion and scalability and outcomes was really on the ground. We didn't understand existing stakeholders, education, you know, the human elements, uh, language barriers, literacy, like coming from where we were, we, 
We just didn't understand things very well, except for the technology side. So in 2006, um, I took a step back and said, you know, how can we enable homegrown innovation around mobile technologies? And uh, I, I, I came across AITI, which was being run at that point by Brian Harrison, who was uh, an undergraduate student who did a really good job running the program. And I came to him and I said, yeah, I have this idea for, you know, teaching mobile technologies. And this programming like really basic phones um, that, you know, feature phones that, you know, ran a really simple version of Java or just ran things on their little SIM card. And I also wanted to uh, focus on entrepreneurship, but in a way that was more like an incubator course, not producing a 20 page uh, business plan, but um, having them go through a real world um, incubation program, something like I had experienced uh, in MIT or at the Media Lab in a, in a course that I, that I helped design. So, um, you know, Bryant really liked that idea and we put this all together. We delivered it in 2007 in Nairobi and we had a great success. I mean, coming out of that class, we had uh, Forbes 30 under 30 winner um, who might be here, Mark. And we had interest from Google, Nokia. And, you know, I just saw the amazing outcomes from that program. And I was like, this is what I want to do for my life. You know, that was definitely the detriment to my PhD and Saman, you know, gave me a lot of leeway um, to, you know, take the next six years to finish my PhD and be a research scientist and focus on GSL, you know, as really pretty much a full-time job. So we had so much help along the way. Martin has named a lot of people. Um, there's other names that I could mention, but it was just really, you know, a pan MIT and pan world, you know, coalition that came together to, uh, to get GSL, um, you know, to the point where it is today and with all the successes. So. That's it. Yeah. And can I, can I ask you how the program impacted you personally? And would you mind telling us what you've been up to these days? You can start, Michael. Okay, well, you know, this was pretty much my, running the program was my first entrepreneurial experience. Entrepreneurial experience. So, you know, it, it showed me what's really required to build something and have it sustain and scale. And I learned a lot from you know, the founders of the program, from all the entrepreneurs I was uh, attached with, with helping a lot of the program um, startups build themselves from the ground up. And then when I finally graduated MIT and left as a research scientist, I started my own company um, in computer security that's doing really well. I'm the CEO of that. So, you know, if you would have saw me 20 years ago, I was, you know, a nerd hunched over a computer and GSL, you know, really allowed me to, uh, you know, to really blossom and, and, and see, uh, you know, uh, work really hard on a project in an entrepreneurial fashion and, and, and direct that to the rest of my life. So I'm really, I'm really thankful for the program definitely yeah great uh, for like we'll go next i'll give you the last word uh katia the, the opportunity through it was fantastic it allowed me uh, an opportunity while at mit to do uh, things in uh, nairobi kenya africa uh, as we move from the continent one continent to another it was never quite clear how we'd end up impacting things back at home uh, since then i've settled back a decade after the program was founded. Uh, we co-founded a company uh, with one of the colleagues we engaged with, uh, Kirimania Moridi. Uh, the company is now about 10 years old. He, he runs the company with a larger team doing uh, extremely well. Uh, and uh, ironically, one of our very uh, fast IT systems was built by a graduate of the GSL program, trained under the new iteration that Michael was talking about, Cosmos Ngeno. 
Um, and then just all around my focus on uh, teaching, I'm based at Strathmore where I teach. And uh, one of the courses I teach is on entrepreneurship. Uh, I'm back in school studying innovation systems and um, part of my research focus uh, tries to look at the kind of ideas we planted through AITI. But I think the most lasting legacy is the network of friends we've built. Um, uh, Michael mentioned Bryant Harrison, there was Manish Gaudi. Uh, and if I look across the continent, there are just so many lives we touched, uh, teaching how to make a difference uh, from a social perspective through entrepreneurship. Some people have made themselves, I think, quite wealthy. Africa's talking is a good example, but it, it's a delight just to see African companies global companies uh, impacting things all around. And finally, some experience I had in China and uh, Japan through the MISTI programs is what we were able to replicate. Uh, so I think for me, it's friendships, 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 uh, networks. Paul? Yeah, I, I want to say, you know, I just want to echo what uh, Michael and Martin uh, have mentioned. I, I think for me, as I said before, uh, part of this is, I think the under, under, undercurrent for me in all of this actually is when I look at MIT itself, and what MIT provided, I think it's it's a basis for everything else. You know, for for the uh, what do you call it for the transformation uh, of this organization, for the bringing up of this organization. And in it, not only did you have that enabling environment, but you also had the students who did not have any pay, did not have anything, but they devoted all their time to a vision to bring this uh, to bring this to bear. And you guys all know how difficult MIT is uh, in terms of work. So just to find the time to do all of this. I was something special. So in other words, what I took out of it was, uh, I was very, very inspired uh, by the energy, uh, by the will of, of the folks uh, to, to hop onto a vision and, and see it through and also see, see it evolve and be, uh, this program become what it is now. Uh, so personally, uh, I've used some of the skills actually that, that I've learned, I, I use them throughout. Um, basically, I actually build models now. I, I, I build a lot of quantitative models uh, not so much on the internet, uh, but uh, for, for all sorts of things, but mostly uh, financial modeling. And, you know, that, that, bears, that comes from some of the programming that I did. Um, and also, you know, I've, I've learned, uh, what do you call it, uh, in terms of the teams that I work with, in terms of the, of the teams that I build, a lot of that also started from the, uh, from the MIT, uh, AIT times when I had to you know, work with, build a team and, and get a project going. So, so I use some of that, some of those skills that were then uh, necessary. I still use them uh, today. So, so in a sense, it built me up for, uh, for where I am today. And for that, I'm very grateful. We now move on to a panel of past GSL participants who will talk about their success stories, moderated by MIT student and recent GSL instructor, Kenny Lee. The first to speak on their story is Yaron Binur, a student instructor in multiple GSL programs in Africa. He's a three-time founder who innovates in technology, education, and social change. Um, so without further ado, I guess the first question will be just, what was your favorite memory of the GSL program? Um, Yaron, we could start with you since you are to the left of my screen on my uh, computer screen. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Honestly, it's a, I'm a little emotional, surprisingly. I knew this was coming, but get, seeing everyone here um, and hearing the founders talk really got me nostalgic to those days and uh, what a wonderful time it was with AITI. I have a lot of memories um, of AITI. I think the first one that pops to mind was the, as a freshman, 
And me and another freshman called Evelyn, we both had to learn Java before going to Kenya to teach Java. That's what we were teaching back then. And I remember just cramming, cramming on the plane and trying to learn as much. And then, you know, Paul trying to help us understand what was going on. And then two days later, we're in front of students asking all these hard questions. So that was one of my fondest memories, um, just that hard craziness of both MIT and AITI combined. And honestly, also, I have a really clear memory of Professor uh, Paul Gray, just as someone who was so supportive in those early years, and just remembering how a lot of this probably wouldn't be possible without the passionate professors at MIT who just enable and believe that students can do so much. Um, obviously, the founders believed in themselves too, but that support was really important. Next is Esten Kimani, who participated in the GSL program in Ethiopia as a student instructor. He is the founder and CEO of Ideas Come to Life. I, I kind of came to MIT looking up to a lot of people like Paul, because I went to the same high school with him. Um, but, you know, I think having, um, as I got involved in the AITI, I also got to meet um, the late Professor Paul Gray and Chancellor Clay. And those guys really helped us raise money for, for the program in those days. And so I'm really thankful. And, you know, it's, it, it's just been a great experience. And, you know, you know, we built a company out of that um, a few years later. So it's, it's just a really great experience. Um, we also had Dumendu Kanakage, who participated in GSL in Sri Lanka. He is the CEO and co-founder of 4Axis, a mobile app development company. Yes, so it was a great learning experience for me, and I consider it as a lifetime opportunity as well. As, uh, as the fondest memory that I have in the GSL program, it was the demo day that uh, we participated and uh, we were at uh, second year at the university at that time and we had never participated at, uh, at a workshop something like that before and I can recall uh, Professor Saman uh, giving out a check in front of the uh, team that presented at that uh, instance uh, in the panel and we had never seen those um, in a workshop in Sri Lanka until then. And, and currently my profile picture in Gmail and uh, 4X's email and here as well is uh, from uh, GSL program uh, demo day. And I have been uh, keeping it for like right now, like 10 years. So that's, that's, that's the bond that I have with uh, GSL. We have Clarice Irabagiza who founded Hey Hey Limited, her startup that grew from her participation in the GSL program in Rwanda. Awesome. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and it's really emotional for me right now. Uh, but I'm so grateful for AITI, GSL and the impact that it's had um, on my life. I've uh, been doing this for 10 years, you know, so straight out of my six weeks in the AITI program and never looked back. And my fondest memory really was just a, you know, welcome break from routine class. So, you know, just being able to experience something so meaningful, so purposeful. And I remember just getting up every day at 3 a.m. and just getting all my work done before the break of dawn, just to make sure that I have enough time to focus 
on the MIT program. It was an amazing experience for me and I'm just excited to see uh, everyone uh, from Paul who I've never actually met. Pleasure to meet you, you're like a legend to me. And uh, everyone, Martin, thank you so much for everything that you did. Gordon, it's so great to see you. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you, Clarice. Um, and so it sounds like there's been a lot of impact from the GSL program, but I'm really curious to know, do you think that when you came and did your first GSL program, was it because you were interested in startups and that led you to GSL? Or do you think GSL itself led to your eventual interest in startups? Like what was that sort of journey like for you? Uh, you're on? I was pretty amazed that a group of students at the time could start something like this. And I knew that I wanted to start initiatives, startups in my future. And I was a freshman and, you know, it just jumped out to me, like, what else would, could I do that would be more interesting than A, teaching, which I love, and B, seeing how a group of students was able to make such a huge impact. Um, and so for me, it was, it was really understanding, I want to do this, but I never believed I could do, you know, do something like that at such a young age. So joining AITI back then really inspired me. I was like, wow, at this age, they're start, starting something with so much impact. Maybe this is something that I should look into. Maybe this is something that I could also do. Thank you, Aran. Yumindu? Yes, uh, so before um, I, I joined GSL program and uh, in, in my university, there was a interview process and we had to uh, like go through that interview process to join the GSL program. And I was interested in startups uh, when I joined the university itself, but uh, we never had like proper programs such as GSL or anything like that at that time. Uh, but when we heard that uh, the GSL program focused on the mobile technology. And I was also interested in developing a company out of mobile technology at that time. So that's why the interest uh, like began in my mind and I joined GSL program at that time. Gotcha, thank you, Dumindu. Uh, Clarice? Um, yeah, I had never heard of um, startups. I had no idea what that was about. And um, after the MIT, the GSL program, actually, I think we really did start a movement in Rwanda where a lot of young people sort, um, sort of demystified what this was. But for me before that, I had no clue what it was and I wasn't even planning to show up in class that day. So yeah, it was, I was lucky, I would say. Yeah, so, um, so when I joined the ITI, I was already um, part of, MIT 50K. So I, I actually wrote the first entrepreneurship curriculum for AITI um, and ran the first course in Ethiopia. So, so you know, I think that was, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of, I think just being at MIT and going through some of those programs kind of opened my eyes because, you know, I think MIT is all about problem sets, solving problems and, you know, I'm from Africa and, you know, we are like, there's so many problems here. So it's kind of a great place for like an MIT type brain to, to be in. Cause it's just like, like, it's kind of like being in a candy store. So, 
yeah so i i mean i think i think i was part of the whole mit like i was already part of the mit entrepreneur enterprise forum so yeah so you know i think that it was great that i could that i could bring that influence to to the program you all had different starting points when you entered gsl about where you were in uh regarding your interest in startups um but yeah the the, the world is full of problems to be solved so how did you decide that your startup at the time and potentially subsequent startups, uh, how, do you, how did you decide it was the right idea to actually go pursue? Um, Dumendu, we can start with you this time. So, uh, so from the beginning, uh, we, like our team were passionate about building creative apps and myself was also a mobile app developer at that time. So after that initial learning curve that uh, we had in the initial years, uh, we did some research on the apps out there, the mobile technology out there, and and the and the space that we can uh, apply our skills. And since then, uh, we de we developed in mobile applications in the creative space. So so that was our passion and the skill set were in, and we released our uh, like initial uh, version of our flagship product in uh, 2013 and we got 3000 downloads in the first day so 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 we were really surprised and uh, we kept on building that idea ever since and we focused only on that uh, niche market and because that we thought that was the right idea of, to move forward like uh, we 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 built it from uh, zero and uh, so the right idea mindset came when we hit the user success uh, when we acquired the users and we retained them and that gave us the confidence uh, to move forward so it like it's it's just it's not a, uh, like a single instance that we think that we got the idea correct but it's most of the time like it was a, a period of time that uh, we worked really hard and uh, we got to a point that now, okay, we can move forward with this uh, solution that we have built and we think uh, it's the right idea, right idea to move forward. So that, 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 that was our experience. Okay, so I've been involved in a, in a previous startup called Africa Stocking. Um, so I co-founded that startup with another MIT AITI um, instructor. And um, so essentially what, what we did was, you know, we, you know, we thought about kind of, you know, can we build a platform that makes it easy for software developers to build apps that use telco infrastructure like SMS and the like. And so that actually, you know, was the beginning of it. And the thing is before we came in it was really hard for small time developers to find a place to build their apps because like the big companies only wanted to deal with other big companies so you know we kind of democratized access to that and you know i have to say that actually like our experience at um, aiti when you know we had to plan programs in like three different african countries it kind of made us start thinking about like, you know, 
you know, before AITI, I was like, you know, this is would be so difficult. But like, because we'd gone through the AITI program and organized this uh, programs, we felt very comfortable starting to build out a Pan-African business. And actually, that's how, you know, now Africa's talking is in 20 African countries. And that's actually the seed for that was actually uh, built out at uh, AITI. So, so yeah, so just, that's just an aside. So for the guys who, the students helping with, with these programs, it's really useful for you in future. Awesome, thank you, Aston. Clarice? Yeah, I think for me, I just started with a, a problem that I was experiencing and I thought, you know, maybe there are a couple of people out there that could be facing the same problem. And uh, turned out there were quite a few people that were struggling to just, you know, find relevant products and services that they needed around the country in Rwanda. We were, we're really a young nation in the process of rebuilding. You know, right now, we're, I would say we're probably about 26 years old, um, if you think about the post-genocide Rwanda. And this was a um, hilly country, very few addresses, you know, no addressing system really available. And I had just had a really tough time um, coming back to Rwanda, trying to find different services, locations, and hey, hey, which means where in Kinyaranda was just, you know, a tool that would help people, you know, try to, you know, find whatever product or service or location that they were looking for. Basically the location friction problem is what we're trying to solve. And I just started by looking within and, you know, what am I struggling with? And I just did some validation with a few people around me. My mom actually gave me the name for the company. And when I tried to explain to her what we were trying to build, and she was like, why don't you just call it Hey Hey? I'm like, awesome, I'll do that. So yeah, that's that's how we, we got started with the idea. That's that's a great story. I'm glad your mom helped you out there. I know a lot of startups struggle for quite a while to find a name. <laughs> uh, you're on? Yeah, so, you know, it's one of my favorite, uh, my favorite parts of the startup journey is exploring the ideas. But it's pretty tricky and think that, you know, finding the right balance between kind of being data and market driven and trying to understand what users want and where their pain points are. And at the same time, also having a blind belief in something that's going to change in the world. It's not necessarily data driven. It can be partially data driven. That balance is difficult. If you're too data driven, uh, you probably are not going to start anything because the more you dig, the, the more you find out why it's a really bad idea. And if you're too blind emotional, you might go in wrong directions and waste a lot of your time. So finding that right balance is and was really critical um, in some of the successes and some of the failures that I've had. Um, but it's definitely a process um, that I enjoy. You know, and with AITI specifically, you know, my my first startup, which is a social initiative, meets pretty much came out straight from AITI. I took a similar model and I brought it to uh, Palestinians and Israelis. And of course it's morphed. Now we're about three years or two years later. So we're in our 18th year now. Um, but in my case, AITI just had a huge and direct impact on me. And at this point on thousands and thousands of Israelis and Palestinians. I'm very proud to be here. And as I said, a little bit of emotional. Thank you to our moderator, Kenny, and our panelists, Yaron, Esten, Dumindu, and Clarice. We are now going to the second part of the Global Startup Lab's 20th anniversary celebration. GSL partners and donors got to hear a conversation all about entrepreneurship with Jesse Zhao and Professor Bill Lett. 
Jessie was a GSL student instructor who has gone on to become an adventurer in her own right. She has worked in nine countries and now resides in New York City working at Google. In her free time, she actually advises startups, mostly those in the early stages. She was also a head of strategy, management consultant, and social entrepreneur. She built the largest e-commerce venture in the Middle East. Jessie spoke with Professor Bill Olette, the faculty director for Global Startup Labs. He is also the managing director of the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship and the professor of practice at the MIT Sloan School of Management. So here is Jesse introducing and speaking with Bill Olette. So what makes entrepreneurship different at MIT? I mean, it's in the blood. I mean, it's from the DNA from the beginning. MIT is a, is a really interesting place. It, it, it is set up, um, its motto is mens amanus. It was set up in the 1860s to um, man the industrial revolution with immigrants and immigrants' kids. It was a land grant university. It wasn't a university, it was a land grant institution. And uh, it was set up to do that. So mens amanus means mind and hand. And if you look at the logo of MIT, you'll see a steel worker there. So it's not enough just to have a knowledge about something, you have to put it into practice. And so entrepreneurship is the process of taking an invention and commercializing it and bringing it into the world. So that is why it's at the core. And it's, it's really been amazing how it has just been in the DNA from the beginning. Ed Roberts has written about this. There have been studies to show at MIT, we were doing entrepreneurship way before it was cool because it was just a way to get stuff out to the world. And um, I, I also went, my undergraduate degree is from Harvard University, which is much different. That that's motto is Veritas, which is truth, which is great, um, seeking the truth. But that was clergy training clergy. It wasn't um, training uh, immigrants to man the industrial revolution to make better you know, railroads and, and, and factories and things like that. So right from the get-go is why. And it's just kind of fed on that since then. We have lots of role models. We've done lots of research at the beginning in it. And it's just become a virtual positive feedback loop going up, Jesse. When you have that entrepreneurial spirit and you bring it with you, even as times change, and we've definitely seen times change this 2020, especially with COVID, and we're seeing yeah. several trends emerge uh, during the time of COVID-19, whether that's the acceleration of e-commerce, maybe the demise of physical retail, and like the movement of just in from just in time to just in case supply chains. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. Which of the current trends uh, do you think are the most promising for entrepreneurs th these days? And which new or emerging business models are you most excited about? COVID, well, first of all, let me say anyone who's been affected by COVID, which is everybody, but those of you who've been affected, you know, very directly by losing loved ones or having loved ones kind of, um, you, know, be you know, lose their full capacity, our heart goes out to you. It's been an enormously difficult time. Entrepreneurs are the ones when crisis happens, the old saying, the darker the night, the brighter the stars shine. But it's not just stars, it's the way entrepreneurs operate. They are very adept at change. We have taught management for 150 years, but management is the optimization of existing organizations. It's making them more predictable. It's, as you said, making supply chains very, very tight and efficient. What that creates is a fragile system. Um, when you leverage things financially, 
they become more susceptible to external perturbations, you know, changes hitting them, they break. And you've seen that in this, companies that were levered up, which were great for efficiency's sake, but they were unable to sustain the shock of COVID. Those fragile systems break. And so people believe, oh, well, then we should make a resilient system. In fact, a resilient system is not what we really aspire to as entrepreneurs. What we aspire to is what we something beyond that, because fragile is the negative condition. Resilient kind of is the neutral condition. We continue on no matter what. The positive condition is in a time of change, we get stronger, we get better. We take, we, 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 the darker the night, the brighter the stars shine in that situation. In a crisis, when the, when the whole chessboard gets knocked over, the people who solve that problem, the best and the fastest are entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurship as a whole, understanding it, it makes you a more anti-fragile individual. It helps you understand how you make anti-fragile teams and organizations. That entrepreneurship is going to be more ubiquitous than it ever has been. So picking parts within that, what COVID has done, as you just mentioned, has accelerated the change towards digital. And we saw this very, very clearly. We don't know all the ramifications, but offline is not going to go away. There will still be stores, there will still be physical, but the dial for online has just been turned up. It's not like these things weren't here before. We did have Skype before. We, we could have done what we're doing now, but what's happened is it's accelerated that change, not just because of the technology, but because of human behavioral changes, because we're breaking old habits. We think it's okay to get on Zoom now and talk to people around the world. And, and that is the big change. There's gonna be a lot of other kind of individual ones, but anything that takes you from kind of online, I mean, offline to online to more digital, no matter what the industry, be it fitness, be it food, be it agri-tech, whatever, that's the bigger trend that's going on here. And you saw that in the bit at the beginning of the COVID crisis in China first. China really moved, the ones who were the digital players came out on top. Well, I'm curious, you know, there's been talk on how COVID-19 has ushered in somewhat of the reversal of globalization and that countries have been closing their borders, you know, and limiting the movement of goods and materials, not just people. Do you mm -hmm. think that such a trend will stick? And how do you think this impacts entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship in, you know, both developed and developing markets? Well, so if you think about digitization is coming, increasing rapidness, you can't kind of do that. It's more of a societal backlash against this. The problem that we have within people looking inward is the problem that COVID and what we, the way things are being done today at a higher level, you're getting a bifurcation of society. So for instance, you know, in the United States, uh, you know, <laughs> now I am one of the well-to-do people. So COVID has not hit me very hard. I, I'm here, a house in New Hampshire that we were able to buy and I'm not threatened, you know, whereas, People I grew up with, they're in New York City. They've got, they can't go to a house in New Hampshire. And so this hits them. And the earnings of the higher people is, is going up much faster than the lower people. So you're getting separation. And that's what's creating an instability in society that creates this kind of reaction of nationalism, in my humble opinion. And that, is, um, that has been accelerated by COVID. 
um, to get that political one. But the problem is when you digitize something, boundaries don't matter. <laughs> you, you can't stop electrons from flowing on the internet. Empowering entrepreneurs and like teaching that, you know, entrepreneurial, um, entrepreneurship rather. I'm curious to know, like what have you and your team learned so far um, around teaching entrepreneurship, given that, you know, uh, we're all virtual these days. How do you balance hands-on work that's required for entrepreneurship and still at the same time, like, you know, keeping everyone safe, teaching new enterprises, uh, which is a class on entrepreneurship at MIT. Uh, yeah, uh, from a distance. You know, we don't know everything right now. And, but look, the fundamentals of entrepreneurship are very simple as far as we're concerned. It's the four H's. To teach entrepreneurship, you have to start with the first H. That's the heart. People have to understand what it is to be an entrepreneur. They have to realize being an entrepreneur is being different. It's, it's if all the fish are swimming this way, are you willing, are you excited to swim the other way? It starts with the heart. The bird sings from within. You have to understand that. And in our education, it's not just here's, a, here's, a, here's the finances of entrepreneurship. Here's how you get product market fit. Here's how you calculate customers. It starts with the spirit of a pirate, as we talk about. We have to get people to believe that they want to be entrepreneurs, that being an entrepreneurship is a noble thing. It's a something that you really aspire to because it's going to be hard. And once we get them to go on that journey, then we can provide them with the second H, which is the head. Here are the fundamentals that you need to know. There's no guarantee of success in entrepreneurship, but these first principles will help you to be successful and dramatically increase the odds of success. And we have to get through to them that you can change the odds. And when we show them the numbers of what we see, our students are coming out of, you mentioned Delta V, those students don't succeed at 10%. They're succeeding at 75% or higher. Uh, and, and, and why are they succeeding? Because they've got the heart, but then they know what to do. And, and understanding the first principles is very, very important. The, 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 the third H is that you go from the heart, wanting to do it, to then knowing what to do. But the third H is the hands, as we talked about with MIT. It's you can't just know what to do. You have to be able to do it. You have to put it into practice. You have to create capability. So you take that knowledge and you put it into practice, head to hand, head to hand, over and over again, theory to practice, theory to practice. And so when you build an entrepreneurship education, you have to do it in an apprenticeship model. And, and, and this is going to be one of the challenges that we have in this environment of virtual, that doing these apprenticeships is harder. Um, it's still possible, but it's not as easy. And people are, are kind of struggling, and, I, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. But the last H, which people, which we, we, we've learned at the center is very important. You got to have the heart, you got to have the head, you got to have the hands, but then you got to have the home. An entrepreneur it, it, it needs a community, not just for the ups and downs emotionally, but entrepreneurship is a team sport. You got to find the people you're going to work with. You got to add people to your team. And as, as Howard Stevenson defined entrepreneurship in a very insightful way, entrepreneurship is a pursuit of opportunities with resources beyond your control. So when you, that means that in, when you're in a community, you can get resources from other people. When I was at IBM, I worked at IBM for 11 years. 
they wanted us to control all the resources. That de-risks it, that makes it more predictable, that optimizes your profit as we're talking about the beginning. But that's not a, a community-based model. That's a command and control model. Entrepreneurs work with, to pursue opportunities with resources beyond our control. So you know, when we're in a community, you want something, you call me up. And I say, hey, she's a good member of the community. I will gladly help her. But then when I need something in Manila or wherever you're doing, I ask you to do that. That is a much more efficient model. Think of the bartering model, kind of a community-based model. It's a distributed model. I don't have to keep up on everything that you're keeping up on. And I don't have to pay for that. And you're really, really good at what you do. And I'm really, really good at what I do. And we trade that. That is the model. So that's why communities are so important for the emotional support, for getting teams to give, see role models and inspire, but also for this distributed resource model. So how has COVID affected th these four H's? Well, you know, um, we can still get people excited in the heart. We can, still we can still teach them the theory, you know, with their MOOCs. The apprenticeship is harder, to be quite honest. And then the community is actually harder in one way and it's better in another. You don't have those serendipitous collisions. It's much harder to have the serendipitous collisions. But we've been able to expand the community more so, like we are here today talking, we've been able to integrate more people in. So one, on one side you give and one side, <laughs> one side you get. Um, I just, you know, I, I think we're learning things that when we get to the other side of COVID, that we will be able to integrate people in these communities more virtually. But I really look forward to the day where we can get those serendipitous collisions though, that happened at, in the trust center, as you know, at the, at the, at, when people go to get coffee, they say, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? That, that's missing right now in the system. And it's easy if you know a lot of people and you know exactly what you want, but when you're trying to expand your networks and getting to know other people, that everything has to be that intentional is, is not optimal. That's interesting. And I'm, I'm curious to know, because, and I'm sure our partner institutions are also trying to experiment during this time. What have, what has worked uh, for you guys in terms of trying to um, facilitate uh, serendipitous conversations, even if for a little bit? So like breakout rooms and Zoom, maybe? Yeah, we, we, we try it. We stay before class and after class longer now. Um, we, we have pitch to match events. You know, we have hackathons where we put people together. Um, you know, you do save time because you don't have to commute. Um, other people have talked about coffee or donut roulette, where you just kind of have this thing and then you meet other people serendipitously. Um, I, I, I'm the wrong person to ask. I know that we've had frustration with this. Um, and, 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 and that's not my problem. My problem is how do I manage the network I have? But for people who are trying to expand that, those are the people that you really have to ask. And pitch to match has just gotten, I think, four times more popular. Pitch to match is where you go in and pitch yours, and then people come and meet you, and you go to a breakout room. But, um, but again, it's it's very intentional, and people get Zoom fatigue very quickly, and they, they miss that kind of human element of it as much. Gotcha. Sorry, I don't have a clear answer, but <laughs> that's the best I can give you. That is great, though, and you've given like concrete things that even our partners can test, like the donut matching or holding their own pitch to match sessions within their innovation centers in their yeah. schools. So that that has been interesting. And you know, I wanted to follow up from like uh, 
your POV as like a mentor to many entrepreneurs, especially mm -hmm. like MIT students, you know, during this time, even if they, like you mentioned, they have the heart and they have the head and they're really um, passionate about their idea. But sometimes um, black swans, uh, you know, would lead to founders experiencing challenges and quote unquote failing or going bankrupt perhaps. So what no. advice do you usually give them during this time of the pandemic where they still believe in their, their idea, they still wanna pursue um, no. like their venture, but now yeah. they're more resource constrained? Yeah, so really, really interesting question. I mean, I, I think what we, I don't think, this is what we say, we, we, we talk a lot about this. We say, look, there's three major, there's three big buckets that, that our, our um, entrepreneurial students have fallen into. COVID happened. The first bucket says, you know what I was doing? I've looked at this over and over again and it this, this isn't gonna work anymore. This, this hand I have, I'm folding, I'm out. Yeah. Um, that's one. The second one says, I don't care. I'm just going, I'm just gonna keep going. I am, I am resilient, I am robust. I am going to ignore COVID, it does not exist. And then the, the third one says, you know, I've looked at my hand, I've looked at COVID, that window closed. And, but you know what? We're doing digital fitness. And, and I believe that if we make these changes based on the new data that we have in COVID, that our business is gonna do even better. And so we're pivoting and we're gonna, we're gonna make these changes. Of those three options, the worst one is the middle one that ignores that COVID's happening. And, and people say, what do you mean? Let me be very clear. An entrepreneur is, it, it, <laughs> the people say, never give up. No, if you're an entrepreneur, you have to know when to give up and when not to give up. And, and if you ignore the facts of what's going on around you to just put blinders on and go forward, that's not what we're training you to do. Sometimes you have to fold and sometimes you have to pivot. But um, I have many... Uh, entrepreneurs who thank me for selling them, you know, this is not where you should be spending your time. You have three MIT graduates here, and this thing is just not a bit impactful enough. It's, you're, you might make it work, but it's not what youth should be doing. The, op the, um, the opportunity costs are way too high. I would like to zoom in on, you know, what you had said that it's okay to fail and that pivoting is part and parcel of what entrepreneurship is about. And yeah. you know, we've got a lot of business leaders who are also on our call today. And now in, during this time of COVID, like new customer preferences have been shifting as well. We're seeing like yeah. prefer safety, you know, and like comfortable experiences. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm curious to know, like how can businesses, you know, and entrepreneurs effectively pivot and respond to these shifts, yeah. uh, especially with constrained budgets as well. Yeah. So first of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, another book that I go in, in my the website is The Power of Habit. Human beings um, are 70, 80% of what we do every day is just habit. We don't even think about it. And what has COVID has done is it's, it's knocked us out of our homeostasis and it changes habits. Again, us being on this call, we could have done this before, but we didn't do it because it was too much effort for us to do it. It was a habit cooking at home. We could have done that before, but we didn't because we had the habit of going out to dinner. You know, there, and when you force habit changes, the question is how long will they last? 
How long will they last? And we do not know the answer to that, unfortunately. But it gives you a window of opportunity for you to test new products to see if they are. And if they work, then you can then see if you can keep it sticky for after COVID and hold on to them. But there's a lot of things that you just never would have gotten a shot at that you would now. So I think doing broad experimentation with your budgets to try new things, to see what will, will stick, and then very thoughtfully see, you know, uh, using data, what's working, what's not, and adjusting those things will give you enormous insights for your products that you can start to develop now, but you have to be very careful because things could snap back, snap back afterwards. I don't think they will. I think COVID is here for at least another six months, but um, I, I, I really, um, I think that in all the areas we're seeing, transportation, hospitality, ag tech, COVID has opened up new opportunities. The only thing we don't know is will it stick once COVID goes back? Um, I like what you said around humans and like customers or users and businesses learning from each other and like yeah. that being a virtuous cycle. If you had to share your favorite entrepreneurship success story over like this past year, which story would that be? And also inversely to follow up, uh, and sorry, I'm like double whammying you with a ton of questions. Which entrepreneurship horror story on the other side of the spectrum would you, you know, want the audience to be aware of and like learn from? Yeah. So first of all, I love all my children equally, just to be clear. All right. <laughs> and anyone who's an entrepreneur, we love. Um, the, the, the case study that has been fascinating that I was just teaching yesterday, I taught before COVID, but it's just off the charts interesting, is Peloton, uh, a, a bicycle that you could do fitness in your home. And they built this bicycle and, um, and they shipped the bicycle and they had, so they were a hardware company. They developed software so that you could see it. They, so they were a software company. They're a content company and that they had this studio in which they produced you know, spinning classes that you could take. And they're a data company as well. And so Peloton you know, is, is doing quite well and it's, it's starting to break, break through and then COVID happens and it just goes, you know, you can't get a bike. I mean, these things, it's like <laughs> toilet paper and Pelotons were, were impossible to get a hold of at one point. And, and the in-home experience that was starting to happen just goes on, on steroids. And Peloton is so well positioned because they have been so disciplined. John, their, their founder has just done a terrific job of like thinking through, we make, we run experiments, we do data and going through that, they have very good user experience and they know who their demographic psychographic is. And they have, they have just done a terrific, terrific job and they're growing, people are happy with it. By the way, I didn't even mention they're a logistics company too. So they're like six companies in one. And um, really, really impressive how they've done that. Doesn't mean, you know, they're the only one. Um, on the flip side, when you look at um, who gets killed by this, if you were a, um, a fitness uh, uh, club, you're getting killed right now. I mean, what do, you, what do you do? And how do you think about yourself? And do you just try to wait it out until this happens? That didn't work. 
<laughs> uh, do you put your stuff online without understanding the business model and ramifications of that? That's not working particularly well either. So, you know, you have to um, anticipate this. You have to have kind of a dual passport where if you're going to do offline, you're going to do brick and mortar, you do have a digital presence as well. And so when you look at Walmart, they're actually doing quite well because they had invested heavily in the digital side. They still have the, they still have the stores, but they invested heavily in the digital side. So when this one went down, they had another one that they could turn up and that's done very well. Misty Radio is a production of MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. It is edited by Amina Katoon. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time.